Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management, that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This podcast is brought to you by L3 Harris. L3 Harris is an amazing company. They provide communications for first responders all over the world. They created the Beyond Push to Talk app that allows your team to communicate between mobile devices and radios through encrypted lines, which makes it so much easier for the team. Even better, they are offering the Beyond app at no cost to agencies for a limited time. You have to check it out. L3Harris.com slash responder support or click on the show notes for details. Welcome back, everybody. It's John Scardina. We have William Jackson Jr. on here. He also goes by William Jackson. His students call him Will. I call him Jack because he's freaking jacked. He's huge. It's awesome to have him on here. He is an emergency manager with the federal government. He owns Gladiator Guns Training Group. He's also lead instructor there. And most importantly, he's a 20-year veteran with the 82nd Airborne, which specializes in parachute assault operations into hostile areas. He was an infantry medic over there, and he was also a chemical, biological, nuclear, and radiological expert. He has, I believe, over 30 missions deployed. He has a lot of experience. He can talk to us about that. Jack, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, July 4th, we can't think of like a better way to to celebrate our country and to have somebody on here who, you know, uh, was even willing to to get into that field to, to protect our freedoms. And so we just want to say thank you so much for your service. And, you know, again, this is a this is a great episode for uh, July 4th. Oh, man, I really appreciate it. Um, thank you for your support um, and everybody else out there, all the other veterans out there. So thank you guys as well. Yeah, for sure. All right, so 82nd Airborne, uh, you know, if you're listening to the podcast right now, that, that might sound uh, pretty familiar. They've been in really big battles. Uh, you know, it's been highlighted, like, with Band of Brothers when they paired up with uh, the 101st. So you might have heard of, like, Normandy or Battle of the Bulge, Market Gardens, these, like, really big things that people know about. But they've been involved with a lot of anti-terrorism operations, too. So, Jack, just from, like, your experience, can you give us kind of, like, those those big missions that some people might uh, have heard of or... Uh, to, you know, to refresh your memory. Um, so, yeah, so there's um, the first one that comes to mind uh, in recent times, at least from, from my experience, is the Operation Monster Rack, which was basically a joint effort between um, 82nd Airborne and um, a bunch of um, special operations units, collaboration with um, some um, foreign service militaries. I, we had uh, Task Force 31, some British uh, Special Forces, some um, German, some Norwegian, um, and a real big presence from the Marines. Um, and basically, we went into Helmand Providence in um, Afghanistan and uh, took that back from the Taliban. So that was probably the biggest um, biggest mission for my time uh, deployed. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they've they've done stuff domestically too, right? Like I was reading all about the eighty second house. Like it helps out with natural disasters. Very and, much. And you guys... Very much. Yep. Yeah, so we awesome. we do a lot of uh, humanitarian stuff, um, show a force a lot of times, uh, Haiti and things like that. Um, just getting out there and showing that presence of support, and then 
obviously having the ability to ramp up if need be for any type of um, hostile situation. So, yeah. Okay. So I got to ask because 82nd Airborne already like, like super elite parachuting into hostile zones, like to the max. And then you, then you, uh, on yeah. top of that, you go into CBRNE. Like now, now I'm like, we're like stacking this. Right. Like, so like, how did you choose the 82nd or how was that selected for you? Was it like a test or was it like a process you were trying to get in? And then why, I mean, right. CBRNE is like the worst of the absolute worst that I can possibly imagine. So why, why yeah. that route? So we have, we got time. We got tons of time, dude. Okay. So kind of the way it happened. Um, so I joined the military. Um, I come from a military family, military background. My father was 82nd Airborne Division. He was um, spent some time in special forces. Um, and then, you know, it just kind of instilled in me if I was ever to join the military, then that would probably be my route, right? Um, I didn't have intentions of joining the military. It just kind of worked out that way. Um, so I joined initially and I, I wasn't in the 82nd. I joined as a medic, you know, when we already um, discussed. And um, I went to a support unit. Um, and then while I was there and we were still in the early phases of in processing, um, my first sergeant, who was basically the, the leader of the unit, right? Um, second in command behind the commander. He basically was like, hey, the 82nd Airborne needs medics. They're about to deploy. Who wants to go? And so me and like three other guys raised our hand. So they said, well, you got to go to airborne school first. So we said, okay. So went to airborne school. That's awesome. 21 days later, we came back. Um, I went to the 82nd Airborne, um, second of the 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment, um, which is basically the 82nds. If we have like a little saying, like the 2505 is what we're called. We have the most combat jumps throughout history. Um, so we were like, we think we're like hot stuff. <laughs> Dude, that is hot stuff, man. That's awesome. And so, and so uh, my other buddy, he ended up going to Joint Special Operations Command. Um, which was great for him. And then the other guy, he stayed at the same unit we left from. But uh, So I went to 82nd there, and then um, I started out there as an E1 and matriculated all the way through um, to E5, um, deployed a couple times with him, deployed to uh, Nicaragua, deployed to Bosnia, deployed to Sinai and Saudi. Um, and then I got hurt on a jump. And um, 82nd Airborne Divisions, their main objective is you have to be on airborne status, right? And this is many moves ago, so um, it's a lot different than it is now. It's the new army, but it was either you jump or you're out of the unit. So um, I ended up getting sent out of the unit to the, on Fort Bragg, on home of the 82nd Airborne Division, getting sent to the hospital to work in an emergency mm -hmm. room. So that's where I really got a a chance to really develop my, my medical skills and stuff like that, doing a lot of things there. Um, I healed up. Once I healed up, I went back to the 82nd. And then, uh, it was your, it was your back, so right? Like you like got tangled up with another guy and like dropped out of the sky basically. Yeah. So we had a, they call it a mid altitude entanglement. Um, basically the, the, the two jumpers are one on each side of the plane and you basically stagger your way out of the plane. But uh, the winds were blowing so high and the plane was kind of rocking. So as we came out, we smacked each other underneath the plane, pushed off, and we ended up tangling our parachutes on the way down. And our parachutes collapsed about 50 feet above the ground and we fell. So, yeah. <laughs> what? So, like, yeah. that's a story, right? Like, yeah, and then I mean, you went back. 
Yeah. You're like, no big deal. It's only, you know, it's only like my body. Like, no big deal. Yeah, I, I was in the hospital for like almost four days. I couldn't, I had no feeling at first. Um, then once I got uh, got released, went on, um, they called it medical profile. So I wasn't jumping for like six months. Um, and I just went to the emergency room and I worked in the ER with night shift, saw everything from gunshot wounds to, I mean, you name it, anything trauma, we saw it. I mean, chest tube, I mean, I've done it all. Um, got healed up and he said, hey, you guys got a spot? He was like, come on back. So I went back um, and then that's when I ended up going to Egypt and did a rotation over there for six months. From there, I ended up going to Fourth Ranger Training Battalion in um, Fort Benning, Georgia. Stayed there for four years and then uh, got commissioned and became an officer and went back to ABC. It's like freaking G.I. Joe. G.I. Hey, Jack. Hey, that's, that's, that's awesome. just my story, man. There's a lot of other cooler stories out there, I'm sure. You no, know, dude. Like, your story is your story. And, like, I appreciate you sharing that because, like, you know, even emergency managers, you know, we don't obviously do anything with combat, right? Right. But what you're talking about, those principles apply. You're talking about being extremely driven. You're talking about a huge trial in your life personally, right? Yeah. yeah. Dropping out of the freaking sky, right? And sometimes hey, I still, feel I still like have that reserve parachute too, by the way. I still have I didn't get a chance to open it. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. awesome though. Like keeping namesake, right? Like yeah. I, I've been out to like some pretty intense disasters and like, you know, when you're talking about, uh, which neighborhood to go into and knowing mm. okay, if I don't go into neighborhood B, people are going to drown or, right. you know, we're trying to deal with the wildfire. You only have so many resources and having to live with those like life or death situations and yeah. understand that there's like a, there's a level of failure there. You know, there's, there's moments that are just really, really hard. And right. what you're talking about though, is like, like, even if you drop out of the sky, get back <laughs> up, like that's going to be like the, the theme probably like we weren't even planning on that, but like, Seriously, drop out of the sky, get back up. You've got a ton of experience, it sounds like, in the hospital, which I'm sure is helping you out now as a, you know, an emergency manager. Yes, sir. And you were still able to continue on that path. So I, I just like kudos to you, man, like all the way. Yeah, man, thanks. Um, it, was, it was tough, um, especially, especially coming from, you know, growing up under my father, he was very strict, very hard on me, um, very driven purpose. Hey, you will do this type of thing. You know, he thought I was a soldier when I was a very young age trying to train me and all that. So, um, that was probably very, one of the hardest times in my life to be able to to fight my way back because, you know, um, we call it being an 80 second baby. So meaning I joined the military, I spent very little time outside of the 82nd. So I'm born and raised in the 82nd. Um, and I took pride in wearing that maroon beret with my unit crest and all that stuff on it. So it meant something. So to not be able to, like, I missed a, I missed one deployment while I was um, injured. So I wasn't able to, you know, go. I was sidelined. So that, that bothered me. Um, but, you know, when I was able to get back, you know, I wanted to make sure I was back and I was ready to go and got back and kept jumping. That's Ooh. awesome. So, like, but you also specialized in CBRNE. Right. Yes. And so your experience is unique because, you know, we we are, as emergency managers, obviously you get this right. Like we're getting uh, information from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories, LLNL. Yeah. And we get and you've been there with me. Yeah. Uh, you've seen yeah. kind of the modeling that they've done. Uh, you know, we're getting all this different uh, data. And when I was on the national team, we would take a lot of time or we take a lot of time trying to figure out, 
you know, where the plume is going, mm-hmm. what's happening. And we're, it's all behind the scenes. We're all trying to coordinate response through the lens of a computer screen, right. essentially. Right. What is it like being on the other side of the glass? Can you share a couple experiences of like trying to do, um, you know, sensitive uh, threat detection or how does that work? So, so yeah. So once I, once I commissioned, became an officer in the military, um, the army chose and said, Hey, you need to be a chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, explosive, you know, specialist. So that's what I did. I didn't want to do it. It wasn't my first choice. I still wanted to stay infantry, um, whatever. Oh, interesting. Um, so I became a, a seaburn officer. And the great thing about it was that, um, like you mentioned earlier, seaburn, we, you do say seaburn, really... not seaburny, seaburny, seaburny. No, I like seaburn. We're going to talk about that later. Yeah. Good. <laughs> okay, so at the at the time, right, the military didn't really know how to use seabird specialists, right? So for us, it was very, for me, it was a very unique opportunity for me to learn a lot of different skill sets with a bunch of different um, teams inside of our unit. So, I mean, obviously I had a, a specific skill set being an uh, infantry medic, so I knew that side, right? Um, and then being able to go into seabird and understand how to, assault an objective, how to clear rooms and how to do all these things that would usually have the the um the seaburnee specialist stay outside on the mission, right? Typically the assaulting force would go in and secure the objective and then they would bring the seaburn guy in after everything is, you know, quelled down. So but because I had that unique experience of all that infantry training and, you know, tons and tons of hours, it made it easy for me to just blend right in, you know what I mean, and go in. So um, we did several missions uh, in Afghanistan looking for um, HME, homemade explosive, not to find any, but homemade explosive. But, <laughs> That's an interesting uh, Not the big stuff. Not, not the big stuff. We found stuff, though. Yeah. But usually it was um, it was it was small yellow jugs. Right. Um, and typically um, we, you know, we'd sit on a house or we'd sit on a bomb maker or something like that. And once we get the we get the cue from whoever the intel guy was, whether it was a. Um, a uh, uh, informant that was working for us or whatever, we get the call and then we load up zero dark 30 or whatever and we drop in and then uh, we walk in and solve the objective. And initially at first, on the first couple missions I did, I, I wouldn't go in, right? And then um, as we started training, training more together, then, it, you know, the guys felt more comfortable to let me go on the objective initial assault, right? So, um, but yeah, man, we, we'd go in and it'd be dudes that the way we would kind of know that they were bad guys and they were making, you know, whether it was using ammonium nitrate or whatever the bomb making material was, is usually they would sleep outside because the fumes from the, the uh, materials were so strong. So they'd sleep outside and it'd be like 150,000 degrees in Afghanistan and you sleeping outside, right? <laughs> so we see that under night vision, man, and we know, you know, dead on, that's where we're going. So um, we go in. We roll the dudes up, and then I start sensitive site exploitation. I start gathering up all the material. I gather up whatever information we can find, um, and then we bag it, tag it, and we take it back on the bird, and we take the guys back to the base, and the um, intel guys will talk to them and do whatever. So, did a ton of those. It was pretty cool. Um, huh. Yeah. So, it's like yeah, we we do um, a lot of uh, when we work with like first responders, right? Like the police, and we're trying to figure out if there's. Um, if there's like a drug trafficking right in an area, it's so much easier to try to do that in a cold mm-hmm. climates because all the roofs will have snow on them. And except for like the one yeah, roof, 
will just be like, yeah, it's just like, you know, freaking warm, right? It's like a dry as a, you know, dry as a desert. So it's, it's a weird uh, thing to like find out like, uh, like canary, canary in a coal mine, right? Yeah, right. So I have a really funny story about trying to, about canary in a coal mine, because uh, when I was on the national team, we would have these interns. They wouldn't call them interns. They called them uh, FEMA core. Okay. Yeah. Very familiar. It's stupid. It, yeah. yeah it, FEMA core. Yeah. It's a 10 month service. No, it's an internship. They, they all try to get jobs afterwards. Right. They get a bunch of training. It's an internship. Of course. So this one group, they always give them these like fun names. Uh, that's what you want to call it. Like Topaz, Topaz four or whatever. Mm-hmm. This one group uh, awesome. came in. Yeah. Topaz 14 came in. Uh, and just like with our schedule, we had like these really cool, like three or four different, uh, big training things that we did in like the first couple of weeks. So they were feeling like pretty high and mighty about themselves because they got to do some pretty cool stuff. And we were trying to humble mm-hmm. them a little bit. And so instead of calling them Topaz 14, we called them Canary One. Right. And they had no idea. They had no idea what they <laughs> meant, that it meant, but they like started like somebody drew like a little canary. I, and so they did this for like several weeks. And finally, smarter guy of the group, Dalton, he's sitting there. And he goes, why do you guys always call us Canary? Like, I just don't get it. It's cool. But like, like, have you ever heard of Canary in a coal mine? And he's like, no. Right. <laughs> so he's like looking it up. So, yeah, we <laughs> that's our version of a threat detection is to go out to the interns and have a field. Of course. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. <laughs> All right. That's awesome, man. So between a so you're a chemical officer and you're a force protection, you know, CBRNE, CBRNE expert uh, officer. Yeah. So that makes your perspective of terrorism unique, right? You're already talking about the telltale signs of like how to do threat detection, but now as an emergency manager, trying to give some advice from to people who, you know, are are looking at those models and trying to trying to make the right decisions. What would you say about terrorism and terrorism related to, you know, Seaburn that maybe we haven't thought about or that you think is uh, really important to know? Wow, man, that's a great question. Uh, wow. I know. Uh, yeah, stumped, <laughs> stumped the chump. Um, so so kind of the way I matriculated through this, right? So you're right. Um, so I am a, trained by the military as an anti-terrorism officer, um, level two, which is basically I can set up and set up and uh, implement garrison meaning like for a whole base their um um emergency response plan their uh terrorism response plan their threat detection all of those different things i can set it up and make sure that it's running the way it's supposed to and all those different things so i think a lot of it um one of the things we probably don't think about enough as emergency managers is uh complacency right um, because I, so currently like with this whole COVID thing that's going on right now, this, I know a lot of agencies, I, I'll speak you know, to mine, but, um, I know a lot of agencies have actually had plans that have been shelved, right? They, the plans have sat on the shelf for many years. They blew the dust off them and they're like, oh man, we don't, we weren't prepared. We weren't prepared. We didn't have a plan for this, that, and the third. Um, and this is really a great time for every agency to figure out what works and what doesn't. And I know for my agency, um, it's been a real eye-opening experience, especially on the TS side, right? Um, because I think a lot of agencies deal real heavy in the TS, continuity of government and um, things of that nature, but don't really worry about the rest of the part. Well, if, if something happens, well, we, we're back in our business continuity and all that, but the main things and functions of the agency. 
excuse me, of the agency that needs to, that needs to function, mission essential functions, um, I think they think more of that than they think the regular stuff. So this gave an opportunity to show, hey, um, you have regular staff who are not part of the, the high side of things. Those dudes and those ladies need to be taken into consideration as well. So for us, it's been a great opportunity to put new plans in place and implement things and get everybody kind of talking and on the same sheet of music because, you know, it's like we always say, you never want to hand out business cards during a disaster, right? You want to know. So I, I literally talked about that uh, in my last episode uh, with somebody. It's like, I, we were talking about it from the contractor side, actually, mm. because now that I do private emergency management, like do those plans for people. Yeah. Like I had to, I reached out to a state earlier this year that uh, Tennessee that was doing um, drones and I do drones, you know, they, they had a tornado. They want to get some drones out there. And so, you know, they were looking for somebody. So I gave them a call, but man, I felt so cringy because I've been on that other side of that fed side mm. of like, don't, don't call me, man. I'm like, I'm literally responding to something right now. I don't want, I don't care. Right. And that's from emergency, emergency manager to emergency manager, let alone emergency manager to contractor. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, you know, it's all about establishing those relationships, but you bring up like a really good point about um, the military training you of how to, how to do these plans for a garrison. Right? right. And so you made that switch several years ago from, you know, you know, full blown, like I'm going to drop out of the sky <laughs> hopefully onto your feet most of the time, most of the time yeah. uh, to, you know, emergency management behind, behind the scenes kind of guy. I see a lot of military guys do that, right? Mm -hmm. Military personnel say, Hey, I feel like I have these skills. Some of them are, are really transferable. Some of them aren't. Right. Mm -hmm. And so why do you think they switch over to the military? What are some of those transferable skills and what do you think some adjustments they have to do to, to, to do better? And that's, a, that's another <laughs> Wow, these are some good questions. Um, so I, out of the park. Exactly. So I think, man, a lot of times, right, um, we'll, so we'll talk about it in phases. We'll talk about it in the, the lower enlisted. We'll talk about it junior enlisted. And then we'll talk about it senior leadership. So when you talk about junior enlisted or lower enlisted, that's like E5 and below. Like guys is just coming in and running their three to four year, two year, sometimes even a one year contract. And they're getting up, right? Um and those, a lot of those individuals either just come in and try to get a skill and get out and don't really have a plan or just come in and get college um, tuition and things of that nature. With this whole new way the Army is given, like, incentives and you have to pay in for your retirement, I'm not really um, read in on that part. But I know for the most part, for my time, the um, and then you have the junior enlisted, which is like the captains and below, um, E7 or E6s and E7s and below and things of that nature. Then you have senior leadership, which is the majors and above and stuff like that. So for me, um, I transitioned out of the military right after I finished company command. So I finished deploying um, to Romania, Latvia, Poland, all those different locations um, with the whole Patriots over uh, Poland thing when Russia was moving tanks and stuff like that. So my command, we were responsible for basically setting up the initial response uh, force for follow-on missions. So people, whatever the unit was, whether it was special operations out of Stuttgart, Germany, or whatever, they would deploy, come to us, we square them away, get them ready on the, uh, the intel reports for the area and all that stuff, and we push them forward to go wherever they needed to go in the theater. So um, that was my mission. We were the contingency command post. So we were basically like the the emergency managers of the play of the mission, right? We put everybody in position and 
did all the right. resource allocation and all that stuff. So for me, the transition was was almost seamless because um, just like with anything, you reach a point where and if, and if you and if you don't think like this, you're, you're setting yourself up. But when you work for someone else, they're going to use you until you're no longer worth. You know what I mean? You're useful. Right. So everything yeah. has an expiration date, especially in the military. And I knew for me, um, I knew once I got to 20 years and um, I was about to deploy again. You know, I had a talk with uh, household six and I called her my wife and she's like, yep, it's time. It's time to hang it up. Right. And I'm like, OK, yeah. well, let's got that go. gray in your beard. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like you, you've done your time. Let somebody come behind you. You got six deployments like that's plenty. Let somebody else get some. So um, at that point, I started transitioning. Um, I started being proactive. And that's what a lot of military people don't do. Um, the Army has a program called um, ATAPS. Yeah, which basically helps you write your resume and all of that stuff. Talks to you about transition. Um, so for me, I had already started that process. I had started writing resumes, um, and I started floating resumes out there, right? And so I got my first. And a lot of times with the military, we don't understand our worth on the outside, and a lot of outside agencies don't understand your usefulness from the military. So when you talk about things that are transferable from the military, first thing, first and foremost, would be leadership, right? Um, for most individuals, if you've ever held a leadership position, you've been a ton of leadership schools, you've been to a ton of other schools that kind of help groom you to be, quote unquote, a leader. Right. Um, and if you're not a leader, then it really doesn't matter anyway. But that type A personality and a lot of times that's what scares other civilian agencies or civilian people off because they feel like you're going to be the elephant in the room who always wants to be in charge. The raw, raw, you know, stick your chest out <clears throat> type person when I'm totally opposite. Right. Like I'm totally different. Like I'm the nicest dude, man. Um, I'm the nicest guy, man. I mean, you know, I have a switch just like everybody else. But yeah. so for me to transition and when I knew that I, I had kind of knew I was kind of going in the right direction with, with emergency management, because when you when you study C-Bernie, uh, that's a part of your curriculum. Right. We study emergency management. Um, very, very little. But our skills are transferable in emergency management because we deal with hazmat and all those other things. So hazmat tech and all those different things I was already certified in before I even got into emergency management. Um, so kind of what, what sealed the deal for me was I sent the resume from, I was in Germany when I retired. I sent the resume back to the States and this company flew me back for a job interview. And um, awesome. I went for the job interview and it was $160,000 a year. And I was like, I've never even seen that much. And, <laughs> yeah. And you're interviewing me for this. And once I saw that, I kind of knew. I was like, okay, I'm, I didn't get the job, but yeah. I kind of knew. I was like, okay, I, I kind of have an idea of what my ballpark worth is for for companies. So I transitioned. I retired, moved to Maryland. Um, and once I transitioned, I started working for a private contractor where I was doing vulnerability and threat assessments for the Department of Homeland Security and Secret Service. Um, and I was loving that. I was going out, doing all kind of cool guy stuff, um, overt. So you didn't know we were there. You didn't know I was there. And um, Then my current job said, hey, uh, we saw your resume and we want to bring you in for an interview. And I went. And that's how I became an emergency manager. So That's pretty cool. Like your experience, man, you, you had, it sounds like, man, I like that the fact your story about like $160,000 a year, because there's a lot of county emergency managers who are listening to this right now. Every, I, I guarantee you every single one of their jobs just dropped. Like what? Like that's possible in this field. Like, yes. Like it, 
but what you have is what a lot of people don't have. You have a lot of experience. You're pushing yourself to have a lot of training and you just went for it. As soon as I found that out in college, like, like that's what I was going for. Like, okay, like I want to get paid, but I also want to help out a lot of people. And I think at the end of the day, like the, the money makes sense because how extremely stressful this job is on a different level. Right. Right. I mean, you're talking about combat, so I don't want to like compare combat to stress, but I get it. But when you're talking about, you know, terrorism and you have to understand like flooding, you have to understand, uh, civil unrest, you have to understand, you know, every natural hazard, how it impacts the community, the seven lifelines or the seven community lifelines that, you know, FEMA has set up preparedness, mitigation, response, recovery, and how that all goes together. Once you start seeing like big picture stuff and you realize like, I talked about evacuating 2 million people in Florida. Mm. That was my first deployment with FEMA was I went out there. I was, I was brand new with FEMA. I'd already been in the feds for a while, but uh, they're like, okay, like we need to figure out how many, uh, you know, people to evacuate and from what areas from this hurricane that's coming in. And I sent them over the data and they're like, okay, great. That's what we're going to go with. And I was shocked that they just went with my, you know, right. I was like, oh, that's 2 million people. Right. Yeah. And so that, that's a kind of pool that you're like, oh, okay, well, I'm just changed 2 million people's lives, you know, exactly. for the next three weeks or whatever. Exactly. So yeah, if you are a county emergency manager, we do really appreciate your work, but like you can go for it, right? Like be like Jack, you can go for it. And I think that's a lot of, a lot of, um, I think that's a lot of discrepancy in the, in the emergency management world, because when I went and I did the uh, FEMA advanced Academy, um, you know, I, I had dudes and, and ladies from my, from my class all over, man. They had a plethora of experience and, um, and, you know, you just hear some of the stories that they have and the, uh, lack of resources and financial this and that, and, and you know, you got to wait to get paid based off of the county and this funding and all this. And I'm like, man, I didn't, yes. I just had no idea what it was like that. And, you know, I did my best to try to, you know, educate them and say, Hey man, there's a ton of federal jobs. FEMA's always looking for emergency managers. Like, try it but i think most people just don't believe it. they either have the experience and the skill or they're just comfortable with where they're at so i mean you you won't know until you go launch it and just send a resume out to fema and see what happens because they're always looking for good people i mean you and i are i would say you and i are already like a different breed because not only have we been able to push really hard in our careers we both also started businesses. Yeah. So right. you and I already have the mentality of like, why not? That's it. Right. I think that's a really hard thing for people to overcome. Mm-hmm. Like, you're right. I'll talk to these county people. I'll talk to even like city people, whatever. And like, they're the most passionate, highly educated, go for it. And, you know, they, they share these experiences again about like, you know, we're, we're dealing with budget cuts and we need to make these evacuation rounds because there's going to be a wildfire, which we had to deal with, with, um, the campfire paradise, right? Like somebody came up with the evacuation route and then it didn't get through. Right. Thanks governor Brown jerk. All right. Uh, but like, seriously, like that's what happens, right? Like these guys are like, these guys and girls, uh, are super passionate, but I think, yeah, it's just like a mentality thing. Like just go for it. Yeah. See like what happens. And it's also a call to the counties and the States. I think it's because the, um, I think it's 1978, the Flood Insurance Protection Act. Once they did that and FEMA said they're going to start doing a cost share of 50-50, mm-hmm. states started removing from their budget, you know, emergency preparedness or emergency response because they knew somebody right. else was going to come in and pay for it. And right. when you don't have a budget for 
everyday stuff, then you're not going to be able to hire people very well. So yeah, that's true. It's a call. It's a call for them to change things too. And, so oh, sorry. Yeah. No, 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 go for it. No, I was just going to say, and then also you have to um, like, so we get a lot of, we do like a lot of interns, right? So we get interns from like local colleges. The last couple of years we had an intern from Cornell. We had an intern from uh, GW and I think we have one from Pitt. Um, all big schools, right? But yeah, what I, what I tell the students and the interns, they usually come work for us for like six months or something. And what I tell them is, or, or when I go out to work with like, MEMA or, you know, Maryland Emergency Management or, you know, Virginia Emergency, whoever, DHC uh, and all those dudes. Um, I basically just tell them, like, listen, if if this is your career field and this is what you want to do, you have to broaden yourself. Like, you have to make yourself needed and you have to get in the room of those discussions when they're talking about emergencies because far too many times emergencies are made without an emergency manager in the room, right? So people obviously, number one, don't know what we do until it's too late and then they don't know how to employ us to help you know figure out what's, what's the best way for something to be happening so um i tell people all the time man go get schools go get training go broaden your scope of of knowledge like extend that mental bandwidth so when it comes time and you're having a discussion about um, business continuity well hey you've been to a business continuity course you can talk business continuity and then hey you have a little more value and so on and so forth so that's what i did um so for me um kind of talking about transition. I know you're talking about the business just kind of transitions into that. So all of my experience that I had from the military. <clears throat> so in my current position, I was, I started out as a hazmat team commander. So I had 32 uh, police officers who worked for me. Um, we had a hazmat response team. We worked with um, um, Capitol police. We worked with um, chemical response units uh, out of uh, Maryland and all these other units. Um, and then that kind of fell apart, right? We, there wasn't so much going on. So they were like, hey, we don't need that program anymore. So we kind of shelved it. And so at that point, for me, I had to find some other way to be valuable to my organization other than just writing emergency response plans, right? So then I started implementing programs, whether it was active shooter, whether it was uh, women's response to uh, rape aggression and um, different things like that. So we started implementing all these different programs. And my, my law enforcement side saw my chief of police would always come and be like, Hey, I know you did this. What do you think about this? And we'd have these, you know, these death side you know, conversations. And then one day he was like, Hey, we want to, you know, have you be an adjunct instructor for our law enforcement. And so then I started working, awesome. working into the training piece. I started developing training for our organization and kind of that's where I've landed myself now. So I kind of moved my job into something that's even bigger than where I started at. So, which is the whole training piece, which, transitions into my company when i got into um at the national cancer institute it was my first uh like big fed job and as soon as i got there within like a week or two i knew that i was on a clock mm-hmm. like basically once i wrote their emergency plans they weren't going to need me anymore mm-hmm. and so in terms of like just survivability in my job this is i, I was a junior in college uh and i got this full-time job so i moved across country took the job but I was still doing school like 26 credits a semester plus 40 hours a week it was nuts yeah but I I had this thought and it has stuck with me ever since is how do I make myself invaluable and so well that's ex- what everything you just said oh my gosh like 
I started implementing training programs. We did cert, tra- we did cert classes. We did ham radio classes. We built up their um, volunteer training group for the the mm-hmm. cancer national cancer suits of two hundred people. Yeah. And fast forward a year into it, they took uh, we were a bunch of contractors for NCI, and they they switched us from like this fringe, like, you know, Hey, we're going to hire you for this one project to changing it into an actual branch within NCI. Nice. And so all of a sudden I knew that, okay, if I want to make myself invaluable, I need to like keep on pushing the envelope of, yep. of how to make this happen yeah. to go back to another point though, you made earlier about uh, a lot of people's perception about a type personalities and military and bringing in there and, you know, being the elephant in the room, which again, I would say that I am, uh, you know, <laughs> if we're dealing with that, uh, one thing I would say is emergency managers to, uh, corporate leaders or to senior staff because they're accountants, because they're doctors, because they're whatever, they think you're a doomsday prepper. Yes. They think you're just super passionate, uh, about these crazy, crazy things. They think every disaster that you're planning for every emergency is world ending apocalyptic, right? Right. But what they don't know is, hey, have you thought about delegations of authority? If we can't hear about you for from for a week because you're sick with COVID and they have to make a financial decision for their company. Mm-hmm. Like, and so what I did at NCI was um, I found out this, uh, one of the directors, he had a bunch of kids who were coming on Earth Day and they loved science, right? Like they're all like about science in their family. And so I teamed up with a tech guy at NCI and we built an augmented reality sandbox. We literally built a sandbox like with sand, mm-hmm. put a Xbox 360 connect and a projector pointing at it. So when you move the sand, the, the Xbox 360 connect uh, would say, Hey, the, 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 the sand looks different yeah. and would change the color on projector. And so it made it look like a, the topographic map was, could be moved in real time. Okay. And we could, we could move the, the sand and make like make water, like pour into it. This is all digitally with the actual sand, you know, and it was, dude, it was awesome, but it was like science, right? right? Like it was something. So their kids come, he basically dropped his kids off, which was kind of lame, but he like dropped his kids off for like two hours playing on the sandbox and the colors kept on changing like really fascinating these kids. And then the next six months, every single idea that I had, uh, they approved, mm-hmm. you know, Hey, we want to implement this idea done. We want to implement this idea done, but my coworkers, their ideas never got approved because they came off like that doomsday prepper. Right, so right. again, advice to emergency managers, like slow the roll, like understand, like, uh, not just like, the the big stuff, but really start to implement like, okay, what happens if you have a pipe break in the facility and like really try to make it scalable so that when the big, big thing happens, they can say, Hey, I've trusted you for all these smaller things. Let's get you in the big one. All right. I'm going to get off that, that high horse for a bit. So you're talking about gladiator guns, training group, you have tons of experience and you've been training with police, right? Not just in your career, but now with, Uh, you know, with first responders in the military, before we even get into gladiator guns, every emergency manager, as, as we've both been talking about is, is all about getting additional training and growing as a, as an individual, expending that mental capacity, right? Uh, what is the best kind of student? If I'm going to go in there because we, we have the whole spectrum, right? Like how do you become more 
of a better mm-hmm. student besides just being teachable? Like, what do you want to see? Um, so for me, um, student wise, I like individuals that are right. teachable, Always. right? That, you know, because we, we understand, um, and this is one of the premises for our company, um, but there's a thousand ways to do something. You have your experience, you know, which worked for you, which tried and true. Um, and I have which worked for me, maybe in the same type of situation, whatever. Um, so for me as a student or as an instructor to have students, um, I could, we call it shooter, I'm going into firearms, but we call it student regression. Let's just call it student regression, right? So meaning if you have your way of doing something and I'm trying to teach you another way to do it and my way either is more difficult or is unfamiliar or discomfortable, then you go back to doing what you were already doing. That's not why you're there. You're there to learn something new, right? Um, And so that's the type of students we have and I like to have because it makes it easier to teach those students, um, they kind of just put whatever they have already learned to the side, you know, put it on the back burner, learn whatever we're doing for that moment, and then you can go home and do whatever you're going to do later. But you have something that you, you've you learned and hopefully you've taken something away from it and then um, you can go back and practice it later. There's, um, there's a, so. I was teaching an active shooter course back in January of this year, right, before people, you know, couldn't see each other anymore. And, uh, there's got, this guy came in, he came in with his wife. I did a community uh, level, uh, active shooter training and he introduced himself, uh, you know, as this emergency manager with a ton of experience and he's been in active shooter responses. And I had this feeling that, uh, he was, he was kind of dragged there. Right. And I think you've had some of those experiences and maybe you can talk about that too. Uh, but what happened throughout the course, instead of saying like, I know everything, I'm just completely cut off even though he was highly experienced by halfway through or, you know, yeah, about halfway through, we took this break and he came up to me and goes, I love what you're teaching. I would love you to come up to our state agency and and teach what we're having, gave me his business card. And, you know, the excitement I thought was great. But then again, at the end of the class, he was, you know, he was trying to answer questions and he was like really involved. It is so much easier to teach somebody when they want to be there right? When they want to be involved. And so even if you're a really experienced emergency manager, even if you have a ton of a training in a a certain field, you have to keep an open mind, right? Because as you said, everybody has different experiences and those additional experiences will only help you out. Right. And I think, I think one of the biggest things that I, for me, that's, that's, that at least for my job that they, they like is that I'm, I'm very, I make everything relatable, right? So I think that's the that's one of the key ways that you grab the students or the whoever you're in front of. You grab that and you make it personal to them, right? You make it, hey, so what would what would your response be if if it was your daughter's school, or if your wife's business, or if your husband's whatever? Like now they have to do that internal check, and it's like, okay, now he's directly talking to me. I do have a wife. I do have a daughter. Once you make it personal, then you grab their attention. At least from my experience, yeah. that makes it easier. Now it's relatable, and they're like, "Okay, now you, now you got me." So um, that's one way we do, especially with our outreach programs. And I go talk to other. Yeah, I think, uh, I think, um, you know, you're talking about that, and I just going back to that active shooter class. One of the best things to do at the end of an active shooter class is to say, "We're sitting here right now. An active shooter comes through the door, left hand side. What do you do?" And like literally have them look at the objects in the room, talking about self-defense, talking about exits, talking about what they would do. And it's like trying to bring that situational awareness up 
is like one of my favorite things to do. But yep. um, yeah. Yep. So, you know, as a trainer and as a guy with a ton of experience, again, you're now training uh, military and first responders, which I think the national discussion right now is everybody agrees that uh, first responders need better training, right? So again, thank you for helping them do better training. Yeah. Um, you oh, yeah, talk a lot about mental agility. In fact, your, your company talks a lot about mental agility and um, uh, understanding that. So what do you think is, you know, what would you define mental agility as? And then how would you, you know, incorporate that more fully into your life? Like, in, like consistently. So mental agility for me means um, the ability to, and I don't want to use a bunch of buzzwords, right? That makes it sound cool, but what's the substance? Mm-hmm. But the ability to shift gears internally at the drop of a dime, right? When when the rubber meets the road and things get tough, you have that intestinal fortitude or that mental, again, mental agility, that mental bandwidth to be able to reach back, right? So we call it we call it myelination, um, meaning that you've done something so many times over and over and over that those neurological pathways to whatever that thing is, it becomes becomes a subconscious response, right? Mm-hmm. So what I tell students is um, most reacting off of emotion is a conscious response, right? So if something happens and you just lash out, like that's conscious. That means you had to think about it. Okay, this dude made me mad or this situation sucks, whatever. This disaster is going crazy. But we want to develop that unconscious response, right? So the unconscious ability to be able to respond to something without even thinking is second nature. Hey, I've done this. Hey, I've, I've wrote emergency response plans a thousand times over and over and over. So when it comes time to have to write one or implement one, hey, I'm your guy. Like, I know how to do it. It, it takes no thought. Um, so mental agility for me is just to be able to to turn on and turn off whatever the situation is, adapting to that situation and always keeping a positive mindset, right? There's never a cloudy day, at least for me. And in my organization, I tell them all the time, you know, you hear civilians crying over this, that, and the third. And I'm like, listen, man, nobody's shooting at you. So what are we complaining about? And then, you know, they look at me as the, the army dude, the elephant in the room, and they're like, oh, here he goes again. But that's my reality, right? That's that's my story. That's my background, my, my, my story that my testimony, hey, I've been through some stuff. So what we're talking about right here, in perspective to me, is really not a topic to be concerned and crying about. But again, it's all perspective. So I think as long as you have that ability to switch gears and to really be dialed in um, and um, be flexible in whatever's coming at you. It's meant to if be everybody on earth took a little bit of time to do some humanitarian aid, to reach out to a different community, to do some like really important stuff, I think a lot of the problems that people complain about would realize like they're they're just they're yes. nothing like there's real problems right. in the world and right. most people they complain about yeah. things that like i find are worthless like i understand like that's like that's yeah. their level of what they think is their max they have no idea what their max is right so uh we have a little bit of time left i just want to like talk to you know ask you about gladiator guns that we've mentioned several times that you're helping out the military and first responders even some civilians who want additional yes. training if yes. you're going to give your pitch to the to that group, say why why take my training or why should they come and 
get trained by gladiator guns. Because we're the best. We're the no, best. Okay, so, so um, <laughs> talk about taglines, yeah. Right. So um, we are a uh, a data driven company, um, scenario based training, um, and we focus on military, law enforcement, and the everyday civilian. Um, and our whole purpose to, is to be a resource to the community to provide training and fill that gap between training and regular everyday owning firearms or whether it's the beat cop, you know what I mean, who only trains twice a year for a range call. Um, and then the military unit that wants to get some more training that may not have um, those type of individuals in their unit to teach a lot of different skill sets. So we just try to provide a, a resource to the community and we're here. Um, we make sure that we make our classes all affordable and for us, it's more quality over quantity. So we don't have a very large classes. We like to keep our classes small so we can give that student the interaction where they feel like they're the only ones in the class. Um, and again, all of our classes are data driven. So it's not, hey, I'm going to go shoot a bunch of rounds. It's a problem solving courses, right? All of our courses, we put all of the different uh, learning techniques into, into play, whether it's the kinesthetic, the visual, the tactile, like all of those different things, um, the audible, um, we do all of those things and make sure that the students get an experience. So when you come train with us, you're not just coming to train, like you're getting a gladiator guns training group experience. Um, and we, we make it pretty cool and it's fun when we do it too. Well, I know there's like a, a lot of really great reviews behind it. I keep on wanting to take it myself. Like I, I think yeah. that's going to probably happen here soon. So come on, man. Uh, yeah. So, you know, what you're talking about though, uh, for lack of better analogy, is like freaking Will Smith and Men in Black, right? You're like, you're not going to shove it a range. You got the aliens. You got like the little 14-year-old girl with her, like, you know, hey, chemical biological books, right? Like that's that's what she's dealing with. Right. So, uh, you know, outside of that perspective, what does a typical day look for you guys? If I'm going to show up at one of your trainings, you're talking about like this really intense stuff, but can you give us some examples of what that okay. looks like? Yeah, so... um. So first and foremost, all of our classes are all, um, they all have a curriculum. They're all timeline. They're all, um, we are an insured and bonded and, and, and back company. So there's a lot of companies out there doing training that don't have insurance. We are insured. Um, and a typical day we show up to the range. Let's say the class starts at nine o'clock. Me and my team will show up probably at seven, get the range set up by eight o'clock, ready to rock and roll. We'll do our pre-training meeting between our team. We'll go over the safety things for us as a, the cadre. Um, we'll talk over because we have a media team that comes out and records and you know produces content for our website and our Instagram and Facebook pages. Um, so we'll talk over the, the things that we want to show and the companies we want to highlight and things of that nature. Um, and then as soon as the students get there, we go straight into you know why are you here? And that's the biggest thing, right? So a lot of times. You know, you go to classes, I've been to classes, and they just do like a range safety briefing. They go straight out on the range. Well, for us, it's a little bit bigger than that, right? So I said that we're a data-driven company and we're scenario-based, meaning everything we try to teach has to be applicable in some way, shape, or form in the real world, right? So whether you're a law enforcement officer, you're military, or you're an everyday civilian, a mom with two kids, single parent, like we want what we're teaching to be applicable to you. So the first thing we start off with, and I'm giving you like the secret sauce, right? This is this nobody Good. knows this. So we start off with what is your why? Why are you in my class? And most people give you these, I'm here so I can get trained. I'm here to sort of no, that's not why you're here. And then I go and I explain to them why they're here. 
And once I do that, they look at you like, you're not telling me why I'm here, but you're really telling me why I'm here. It's like, wow, okay. And we put it in a different context, right? So once we spin it and make them think, like, once you get that piece and then we go through the whole uh, whole portion before we actually start shooting, um, which is about 35, 40 minutes of discussion of different things, um, building the mindset. So everybody uses that buzzword. So we establish them the proper mindset before we get out of the range. And I tell you, you can see the light bulb go off in a lot of shooters' eyes, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's you know the regular everyday you know man or woman. You see the light bulb go off when we finish that conversation. They're like, "Oh, let's go do this," and it, it makes for a better experience. Again, we talk about the gladiator guns training experience. That's what they get when they come to our class. There's a lot of discussion in the U.S. Obviously, should people have guns? Should people not have guns? Who should have them? Who shouldn't? Training is what saves lives. So I think it's amazing that you're offering training. I think people need a lot more of it. Emergency managers, though, uh, you know, going back to that perspective, because FEMA is within the Department of Homeland Security, because you know they've adopted that mission of not just like the four basic areas, they've added protection. Emergency response agencies right. are now, I, I think uh, I've talked about how in right. Pennsylvania they're doing that uh, and some other places. Now they're requiring emergency managers yes. to have that first responder or that um, law enforcement side carrying a weapon. How do you feel about that? And if you are in that situation or you're thinking, hey, might, you know, if we're talking about careers, right? If you're trying to, to build your capability as an, a future emergency manager and you think you have to have that kind of training, what would you say is the entry level for your classes and how do you feel about uh, emergency managers uh you know carrying a weapon so um that's it's a, too far i mean it's kind of a big one it but, is but we, yeah. we, we're going to tackle it mental agility here we go so um <laughs> so first and foremost i think if you are a capable citizen responsible citizen and you feel the need to own a gun and you have the the legal right to do so and you know you're not a criminal or any of that type stuff and you want to own a firearm i think you should own one right because we all understand um you're your own first responder i I believe that you should have training um you should have medical training um you should have a lot more than just you know hey i'm gonna dial 911 right so that's the first thing. And as an emergency manager, if your job is requiring you to do that, I mean, because obviously there's a lot of people who don't like guns, right? So um, if you don't like firearms and your your job's requiring you to do that, then you might be in the wrong field. But I think if, you know, because I know I was talking to someone and they were saying that the fire department is about, is about to start training their fire um, firefighters in um, firearms training. They're looking at giving them firearms training. So I think if that happens, it's going to be great because, I mean, we've heard far too many stories of uh, EMS responders getting shot at going into scenes and you got, you know, firefighters getting shot at. And so then you got people on on the scene who are inside of the the threat area not being treated because you can't get in there without law enforcement. So, um, you know, now you have the ability to create rescue task force and contact teams and all these other different things to go in and get these individuals out. Um, So, yeah, so we... We are advocates for everybody owning a firearm if you're legally allowed to. Then when it comes to training, right? So for us, we build a tiered system in our company. 
Um, our first tier would be our foundational course. This is the course that if you just bought your gun, you got your license to carry because most states, all you do is go listen to somebody for four hours and you can shoot 50 rounds and you hit, you know, 40 something out of 50, then you get your license. But they don't teach you anything about weapon manipulation, safety, weapon handling, any of that thing. So this will be focused on in our foundational courses. Um, from there, once we where our foundational courses stop, our level one courses pick up. So our level one courses are they're a lot more um, advanced. It goes into some more uh, advanced marksmanship, combat marksmanship, um, movement, positional shooting, a lot of uh, cognitive processes, figuring out problems through you know different situations and scenarios. And then we go to level two, which is all about movement and a lot of shooting and understanding and thinking through problems. Then we have specialty courses too. So we have the whole gamut for anybody that's looking to get trained. That's awesome. And again, like I'm a huge advocate of training. I teach active shooter awareness classes for uh, staff. I, and I don't uh, just cover like the runaway part, right? Because, you know, that's a huge part. But like I talk right. like we what we say, you know, talking about revealing like behind the curtain kind of stuff. What we talk about is we talk about activate instead of fight. Like there's this theory that every single person on earth, somewhere along their family line, their ancestors, somebody fought in a war, right? And survived, right? right? Every single person on earth, they have that DNA within them that says, if it comes down to like life saving, like you need to fight. And so I was in this class, uh, I think it was Salvation Army. Um, and this lady was like, I don't think I could do that. Like then the guy's shooting you in the face. Like that's what we're talking about. Every single person should right. have training and this is how you do it. This is how you respond to somebody with a gun in your face, you know? And I, mm-hmm. I think it's like a lot of people just, uh, whether like society always says that like, you're not even allowed to pick on the bully, like screw mm-hmm. that. Like if there's somebody picking on my kid, I'm going to tell my kid to punch him in the face, you know, like, Exactly. Now I'm going to get child protective services called on me, but uh, you know, like there is, we need to like start understanding like uh, appropriate reaction. Sometimes, right. uh, you know, a lot of times a lack of training causes people to overreact and then they get hurt. Overreact, exactly. And then the exactly. other side of that also is underreacting, is getting picked on, is getting yes. killed because you don't know what to do. You're talking yes. about firefighters getting weapons training, firearms training, uh, the the navy yard shooting. Yeah, we couldn't send in people with medical or they couldn't send it. You know, all these agencies responded. Medical couldn't get in there because medical can't do anything with firearms. Right. And so you're dealing with a police from every different kind of agency, local, federal, state, whatever, who have a myriad of different training. And their their job is to get the guy right. Like their right. job is to find him, take him out. Uh so all these people like they, they wanted to bring in this conglomerate where, you know, in terms of their diamond formation to have basically a medical person with them, yep. but they couldn't do that. So, you know, like, I, again, I'm an advocate for training, whether, you know, whatever it is in emergency management and the field is going towards firearms. Like it is something. And if you don't feel comfortable with it, yeah, I agree with you. you have to get out because, you know, at the end of the day, when nobody else is there, you're, you're the only emergency manager there and your and your agency's EOC, yep. and there's an active shooter situation. People will naturally look at you anyways. Yes, and so it's a, yes. it's much better than I'm going to play. You know what I saw on TV, Men in Black, <laughs> versus like oh I got trained by Gladiator Guns. You know exactly on scenario based training. You can tell that you and I 
were formally educated in emergency management right. and that our generation is training. Uh, for those who don't know, Jack and I went to Georgetown together. Yes, sir. Because you kept on saying the same piece that I've been saying. We're data-driven. Yes. When emergency managers stop making opinions and start making expert analysis based off of data, analysis, you know, things change. And so I think it's great that you've looked at the data that you've been able to use your experience as an emergency manager, as a you know, 20 year veteran. Again, thank you for that to form Gladiator Guns Training Group. Obviously, I'm a huge fan. I haven't even taken the training, but I know you. Yes, sir. And I and I I know the stuff that you've been putting together and I've I've heard of the reviews. But before I let you go, then we're gonna do something brand new as of this month called Rapid Fire. Oh, and it's kind of funny because we're talking about guns anyways. But I'm going to ask you just a bunch of really quick questions. Okay. I already led into one earlier, but just give me like the yes, the no, or like, you know, the one sentence answer. And then, you know, we'll leave uh, the comments for people to, to come back and ask more. Okay. Okay. So rapid fire. What is the hardest part about leaving the military? Leaving my soldiers. Gosh, that was an obvious one, right? Yeah. Is this E and CBRNE, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, explosive, redundant? Is the E redundant? No. What? No, the E no. is super redundant. I think the E is super stupid, but that's fine. Uh, you're the expert. Okay, we're going to clear clear up a rumor because people hear things like dirty bomb, and they're they're so afraid of dirty, dirty bombs. Right. Nuclear weapon or dirty bomb, what would you rather respond to? Uh, nuclear weapon. Okay, that's how I know you're the expert. I would, I would literally just hang up right now if, if you would have said dirty bomb. Uh, <laughs> I should have said it just to get <laughs> Just to, to finish, yeah. Uh, what is the most important large-scale threat, natural or man-made, that emergency managers should focus on right now? What, do they should, what should they be studying? Um, situation dependent on your agency. Okay. Because I know ours is different. That's kind of a cop-out answer. That's a little... <laughs> National scale. I mean, okay. So if I had to pick one, I'd say uh, a nuclear, nuclear, nuclear okay. attack. Yeah, nuclear attack. Okay. Uh, one to ten. How accurate is Bandit Brothers in depicting what it's like parachuting into hostile zones? <laughs> I would say it was pretty accurate. Okay, I'm glad you said that because uh, every year on Memorial uh, Day weekend, I watch that. But I love it, so I'm glad you said it's good. Yeah. Uh. So. Yeah. So real quick, so my my wife got me the Band of Brothers DVD set, box set, signed by like six of those dudes. Are you serious? That's awesome. I think if people actually watched that show, I think they did a great job, not just with the, the live action or, you know, like the, the theatrical part, but like the actual interviews T- to realize what these people suffered to end the Nazi aggression and to like, I think that would like, like, oh, like that's who we want to be like, like, yeah, like. Be like Jack, 82nd Airborne. Okay, uh, let's get back on track. So, rapid fire. What is one thing we need to change in emergency and disaster services? Um, it's kind of a big question. Yeah. One thing, real quick. I think, I don't know if it's the word, it changes the right word, but I think emergency managers need to fight for a seat at the table. I agree with you 100% on that one, actually. They need to be much better at articulating what they can provide and not come off as that doomsday prepper, right? Yes. Uh, okay, you and I went to yes. Georgetown. Who wins the title first? Georgetown basketball, the the Orioles or the Redskins? All three teams suck, mm. but what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Redskins are fighting over changing the name right now, so I'm going to go with Georgetown. Okay, I like Georgetown. Georgetown's, I think, record's still pretty bad. 
We are. So, yeah, but we got sucks. McClung, so he's going to lead us this year. <laughs> Hoya Saxa. Okay. Yes, all day. Um, let's see. What is the best first responder training group? Glad to go to training group. Perfect. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We've covered so many different really great areas. Awesome. That was fun. You know, just to summarize for everybody, you need advanced training. Yep. You need to constantly seek training. Yes. Be teachable. When you're falling out of the sky or after you've fallen out of the sky, <laughs> come back to the table. Keep keep pushing. Everybody has trials. Some are big. Some are small. Yes, sir. Recognize what the big problems are. Yes. And if you're going to do firearms training, get it through Gladiator Guns. Jack, thanks, uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on to this podcast, for sharing your experiences. If you're going to tell anybody about Gladiator Guns, we've been talking about it so much. How are they actually going to find you? Yeah, so you can reach out to us on uh, the World Wide Web under www.gladiatorguns with a Z traininggroup.com. And you can find us there. And you can also find us on Facebook under the same title, Gladiator Guns Training Group. Perfect. So if you're following Doberman EMG Instagram, we're following like three or four people. One of the three or four people is Gladiator Guns. Go to over to our page, of course, like it, and then, you know, like Gladiator Guns. And of course, if you like this episode, we want you to give you that five-star rating, uh, subscribe, and send us, a, send us a message to info at DobermanEMG.com. Again, that's info at DobermanEMG.com.